The Connecticut Democrats podcast is back with a new name, Connecticrats, and two new hosts. My name is Michael Cerulli. I'm the president of the College Democrats of Connecticut. And I'm David Kostek from the Connecticut Democratic Party. And this week, Dave and I had the opportunity to speak to two great Democrats. I spoke with Attorney General William Tong. And I spoke to Mary Wielander. She's a candidate in the 114th district, that is uh, Derby, Orange, and Woodbridge. And uh, she told me all about what it's like to run in 2020, which is a whole lot different than it's been to run any other year. It's a great conversation, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah, Dave, she's really outstanding. And in my conversation with William Tong, we talk about how he's defending against the attacks in the Postal Service, how he's holding President Trump accountable, and what it's like to be late to law class when your professor is one Barack Obama. That conversation coming up next. Attorney General William Tong, welcome to the podcast. Michael, thanks for having me. It's so great to see you. I know you're a very busy guy, um, so we'll jump right into it. Uh, as our state's attorney general, you have such a broad range of responsibilities. And one of those things that you've been up to over the past few weeks is defending the integrity of our Postal Service, uh, both for our election and for all the people around the country and the state of Connecticut who rely on it. So give us a quick update. Uh, how's that going? I know you've got some other state attorneys general who you're working with. Um, if you could just tell all of our listeners about what you're doing to protect the U.S. Postal Service. So uh, before I jump into that, let me thank you, Michael, and the Connecticut Democratic Party for this broadcast. And congratulate you on your first national convention. Um, as we're speaking, we're in the middle of convention week. I My first convention uh, I was in college, and um, I went to the first Clinton-Gore convention in 92 in New York. So um, that was pretty wild. And um, though you don't get to be in the hall, this is also uh, an election of enormous consequence. And I want to thank you for your leadership and for other college students being a part of our party and our convention at such a critical time, taking responsibility for your future while you're trying to figure out what's going to happen with school, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's very. Uh, it's a very interesting time to be a delegate to the convention and be able to cast my vote at the DNC before I've ever even voted for president. Right. Um, so it's been very exciting. So um, to answer your question, it's been a, uh, an interesting, uh, if not particularly difficult, couple of weeks. We had a huge storm here in Connecticut. And uh, as you know, I'm on the front lines holding Eversource and UI, our state's utilities, accountable for what I believed to be a stunning failure in responding to the storm. And then on top of that, the president of the United States tells us um, that he intends to undermine the Postal Service. Uh, frankly, he has already undermined the Postal Service and potentially sabotaged this election. Um, he complains a lot about rigging the election. I think he's trying to rig it in his, in his favor. And um, today, uh, I am announcing have already announced that I'm going to announce uh, more fully later in the day that uh, Connecticut is suing the Trump administration to protect the Postal Service, to make sure that the Postal Service does what it's supposed to do, and what it needs to do to, to ensure a fair, transparent and accurate election. Uh, and I think everybody should know that um, this election is going to happen. It's going to be fair. And people should trust in not just the Postal Service, but in our system. It is a strong and durable system. 
people should vote. They should vote confidently uh, and not be afraid to vote because that's what the president wants. He wants to sow doubt about this election and whether your votes will count. And that's that's a, a time honored um, or dishonored voter suppression tool. And he's using it. It's right from the voter suppression playbook. So don't fall for it. Vote, vote confidently. Vote by absentee in Connecticut if you need to. Vote in person if you can. And and let's bring this home for Joe Biden. Absolutely. Um, talk a little bit about, if you could, the mechanics of what is happening to the Postal Service. Because I think a lot of Americans, particularly a lot of my peers, see Donald Trump sort of blundering, uh, not very coordinated person who, who's talking about delaying Postal Service uh, deliveries. Um, but it's actually, as I understand it, a very sophisticated effort that's being undertaken to decommission mail sorting machines and other things. If you could talk about sort of the main points of what exactly the president's cronies are doing to stop the Postal Service from doing its constitutionally mandated job. So I think that I think you just answered the question, right? It has a constitutionally mandated job to deliver the mail. and. It is the postal service, not uh, the postal business. And so like fire, police, governments broadly, the military, U.S. Army, it, 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 it's important that it be run officially, efficiently, but it's not important that it run a profit, right? We don't invest in the postal service um, as shareholders for its earnings. We depend on the service so that our society, economy, schools, life functions. And what the president is trying to do is in the name of efficiency, which is inconsistent with, efficiency is not inconsistent with its mission, but in the name of profit-making and profit-driven efficiency, right? The private sector mentality, um, he is dismantling basically the operational and physical infrastructure of the Postal Service. So what do I mean by that? Michael, I, I regret that you are too young to know this. I, I doubt you even know what a payphone looks like. But, <laughs> that, that would be true. Yep. But a payphone, uh, you know the concept of a payphone. I do. Yes, you I've put, seen that. You put the change Potter in movies. it. Yes. Yeah. You used to put a dime to make a phone call <laughs> to your parents to ask them for money. That's what you would do as a college student. Well, I still uh, do that, but not on a okay, all right. well, <laughs> But you, you do it on your cell or you FaceTime. So um, when I was a kid, the mantra of the Postal Service for generations was neither rain nor snow nor sleet nor dark of night will keep the post office from doing its appointed duty, right? That was his thing. I think that's even carved into post office buildings on the side into the granite, right? That was the deal. The postal service did what it had to do to deliver the mail and first class mail got delivered in two days. No longer the case. No longer the case that it does what it has to do. No longer the case that mail gets delivered in two days. Now you're two days, you're lucky if it's two days. Um, but a lot of people in Connecticut aren't getting ballots delivered, medicine delivered, home health care products delivered, financial information, school information delivered on a timely basis. And that uh, slows and impairs every facet of life for all of us. 
Um, and, and basically because of service cuts and because it is no longer the case that the Postal Service will go the extra mile and work overtime to get us our mail. And so that's the operational change. The physical change are the mailboxes, the huge mail sorting machines, of which there are close to 700. Um, that uh, is the physical dismantling of the Postal Service. And um, that has been very um, destructive to the ability of the Postal Service to meet its mandate. And what the president is doing in the name of efficiency is, is undertaking all of that through Postmaster General DeJoy. But that was already happening. Now lay over that the president's stated intention not to have a stimulus package, not to do a deal with Democrats in the Congress because he doesn't want to support mail-in or absentee ballot voting. And he has said explicitly, if I don't do a deal, I can defund the Postal Service and I can prevent people from uh, mail-in voting or absentee ballot voting. And that is a statement of intent to interfere with this election in the Postal Service, and that's illegal. Wow. Wow, that's just, it's breathtaking what, what's being done right now. Um, as we are recording this, it's August 18th. Um, today is the day that the lawsuit will be announced. Um, what happens next? Uh, for those of us who aren't uh, state attorneys general, who don't uh, know the process behind these multi-state legal actions, what happens next? What should folks expect over the next week? And what can they do, frankly, uh, to voice their, dis their, their concern uh, and their disappointment in what's happening with our Postal Service? So the way that it works is the community of states have come together. In this case, it is, um, it, it's the Democratic AGs who have come together. Sometimes it's the community of states, broadly Democrats and Republicans. Sometimes it feels like we're the only body in which Democrats and Republicans still work effectively together, and we do. But, um, the community of democratic states are coming together and taking legal action. I'm part of one coalition um, that will announce today that is being led by Washington State and my good friend Bob Ferguson, who was on the front lines of the travel ban, um, uh, who's a great lawyer. And we're part of that coalition. We're going to file um, in Washington and uh, in the Ninth Circuit. It is a broad national coalition of AGs. The way that it works generally is we're very close and I'm very lucky. AGs in Connecticut um, are a distinguished line of strong public officials. So the first um, elected attorney general who served full time was Joe Lieberman. And uh, Senator Lieberman served until 88. Um, and then um, Clarin Nardi Riddle, the first woman to serve as attorney general, served the remainder of his, of his term to 1990. And then General Blumenthal was elected. And General Blumenthal okay. served okay. for 20 years. You've heard of that guy. He <laughs> served for 20 years. I don't think I'm going to break his record. I hope not. Um, and uh, it's a little unnerving you know, to have the gold standard of Connecticut attorneys general hanging around the hoop. Whenever I see Dick Blumenthal, I feel like I am underperforming and 
don't measure up. But I'm trying. I'm trying. So it goes Lieberman, Larry Riddle, Blumenthal, Jepson for eight years. George did an amazing job. He started the generic drug price fixing case. George, by the way, was chair of the Democratic Attorneys General Association and president of the National Association of Attorneys General. That's important because it set me up really well. And it set me up to be a leader, for example, on opioids. I'm on the National Executive Committee, the Opioids Investigation Litigation. I'm on the Democratic Attorneys General Association Executive Committee. I'm a freshman on that committee, which is a an important thing for Connecticut. And so I'm front and center in a lot of this multi-state coordination. And, and what that means is that I am a driver of a lot of these meetings and calls, and I, I do travel a fair bit when we can travel to be physically with my AG colleagues so that we can close the door and have face-to-face -face conversations and strategy discussions about litigation broadly and so i've been on the phone non-stop with my colleagues and um this weekend on the phone with with washington state and we hatched a plan face to face to go it this way and we're doing it we're starting it today so that's how it works uh a lot of my time i joke i thought i left the legislature and i it appears that i just moved from one legislature to another um, I moved to the um, legislature of AGs, I guess, and I'm in the Democratic <laughs> caucus. The trouble is there's no Speaker of the House and there, everyone's a chairman or chairwoman. So it's a much different dynamic. But um, I work very closely with my 50 colleagues, 56 colleagues, that you've got to count territories. We'll be back with more from Attorney General William Tong right after we chat with Mary Wielander. She's a candidate running for the Connecticut Legislature from the 114th District, and she's up next on Connecticrats, the Connecticut Democrats podcast. We are joined today by uh, Mary Wielander, who is running in the 114th District, that is uh, Derby, Woodbridge, and Orange, Connecticut. Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. You're very wonderful. Lovely to have you here. Um, well, tell me, tell me a little bit about the district, about Derby, Orange, and Woodbridge, and what is unique or special, and why you're running. Uh, wow. Well, Derby, Orange, and Woodbridge each have their own very unique personalities. So it's more why each town is special rather than um, the district as a whole. So I live in Orange, and I think Orange has a fantastic uh, balance of modern and um, traditional makeup. So we've got a lot of great farms, a lot of um, open space, which is fantastic. And we also have access to the post road and um, a larger um, industrial base, which is great for taxpayers. Um, Woodbridge is really beautiful, open spaces. They have a strong emphasis, like Orange, on education. Um, we're part of the same school district. And um, Woodbridge is a very diverse community and is um, really emphasizing um, stronger community right now, I think is, is one of their emphasis. Um, and Derby is so dear to my heart. I love Derby. Derby has so much heart and so much potential and people are so proud to be from Derby and part of the Valley. Um, and I have been just, so humbled by being welcomed by the, the residents of Derby so much. So, um, yeah, I, I like Derby a lot. 
Uh, you're, uh, you're, you come from a background with the Board of Ed. You've been mm -hmm. on uh, your Board of Ed for some time. Uh, what are you hearing from voters as you're talking to folks about school reopening and about education priorities generally for the uh, next legislative session? Um, that's one of the things that the topics that are coming up the most. Um, I serve on the Orange Board of Education. I am on the reopening committee um, for our district. I am PTA co-president of our school and I have three school-aged children in two different districts. So I have been focusing a lot on the educational situation right now. The main issue people are concerned about is the safety aspects. Um, we're you know, really looking at how are we going to keep our children and our teachers and the staff safe? And that's the main focus that people are having. And then it goes into how are we going to communicate the curriculum? How are we making sure that we are preparing our children both academically, but also socially and emotionally? And what kinds of ways can we weave those two um, very important things together. Um, that's, I mean, right now, that's where we're looking and any focus on education after the pandemic, I think is going to have a very different lens. Um, we are seeing a lot of disparities in districts across the state and in um, our district, in um, the 114th, everything is being done just a little bit differently. Orange elementary schools are doing something different than Woodbridge elementary schools and different than Derby elementary schools and um, even different than Amity district. So it's, um, it's going to look, I think, very different, but I have to say that the teachers and the staff have really stepped up. And they are, the feedback that I'm hearing now is they're excited about school starting again. Um, we are going out of our way, you know, on our reopening committee to make sure that we are protecting them as much as we can. And we are providing an environment that is not only safe, but actually conducive and for learning and welcoming at the same time. A lot of, you know, a lot of the same issues come up in campaigning now, right? Yes. Um, it, you, you ran once before for this seat and uh, as your second go at it, obviously night and day uh, in, in terms of campaigning. Uh, are you, are you uh, out on doors or not? I have done limited doors. Um, it is, it is, it's a completely different situation. Two years ago, I was out knocking doors five, six days a week for four to eight hours at a time. And I was having fantastic conversations with residents through all three towns. Um, now, most of our campaigning is done over the phone, um, which isn't the same connection. And I do miss talking with people on doors, but our main priority is making sure that we are safe and we are smart about how we do it. So um, it's looking at the numbers, it's paying attention to the case rates, and it's listening to the residents. And so far, people have been open to my visits at the door, but mm. I'm standing 10 feet away, I'm wearing a mask, um, I'm not touching anything. So it's, uh, we're, we're trying to be smart about it because it really is still incredibly important to hear the concerns of the residents of this district. What other ways are there to reach out? Let's see. We haven't tried <laughs> like passenger pigeon yet, but <laughs> um, we are using phones. Um, we're making lots of phone calls. We thousands and thousands of phone calls, texting, 
we're doing literature drops, which is just bringing my information um, to someone's home, but not interacting directly with a voter. Um, we're going to do postcards. Um, we are Zooming with people. We're doing virtual phone banks. Um, we are going to be doing small events like Orange um, Democrats have a Meet the Candidates picnic that is held outside every year and that is happening next week. So that's that's how we're going about it. But it every, needs to be creative. Now every campaign, every town committee has uh, a whole new set of challenges. And this is the time of year when usually there's the, the clam bakes and the picnic and the barbecue and the whatever event in, in every small town and city across the state. It's a... Uh, such a radically different, different, different campaign. Um, how, do, how do people help you out? How do people reach you? They can go to my website, which is wheelanderforct.com, W-E-L-A-N-D-E-R-F-O-R-C-T.com. And that has all of the different ways that people can get in touch with me. Um, my cell phone, you can always call that. That's 203-881-6207. I'm happy to talk with anybody and hear their concerns. Um, but we are available to get in touch any way, shape or form. Um, and we are grateful for any help um, and feedback that people want to give. Exactly. I mean, everyone's very focused on the top line race, right? Uh, yes. We're, we're recording this just coming off the Democratic convention. Next week, the Republican convention's in, so it's in the news. That is the top headline. But in Connecticut, there are no Senate races. There's no governor race uh, this cycle. Uh, there are congressionals, all five congressionals. And then you guys are the, the next line down. So uh, uh, do get in touch with your local candidates. This is, this is really where um, the help is most needed, I think, in, in a certain sense. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing right now across the country is how important not just your state legislatures are, but your local government. And if you are interested in getting involved in your town level, this is a great time to reach out to your town committees and find out how can you start getting involved now because municipals happen every two years as well. And it's really important to have people elected to office that actually care about what is happening and are willing to put in that time and that work. Um, and it's one of the biggest ways you can have an impact on the, the health of not only your family, but your whole community in the state. Mary Wielander is running for the Connecticut House of Representatives in the 114th district. Again, her uh, URLs and all her social media tags are mm -hmm. Wielander for F-O-R-C-T. So you can find her on Facebook, you can find her on Twitter, you can find her on Instagram, you can find her on the website, you can find her out on the doors and on the phones in Derby, Orange, and Woodbridge every day until the election. <laughs> and you've heard her here on Connecticut, the Connecticut Democrats podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is great. We'll profile another candidate next week, but right now, let's return to Michael Cerulli of Connecticut College Dems and the rest of his interview with Attorney General William Tong. Two weeks ago and into last week, we were hit by one of the worst natural disasters Connecticut's seen. And I think I speak on behalf of many Connecticut citizens in saying that folks were not happy with the response of yeah. the utilities companies. And, yeah. and you've taken a lead, and you're actually, I was reading this morning, going to be do, doing something called a trial-like race or a, or a trial-like proceeding uh, to hold our utilities companies accountable. Tell me about that and, and tell maybe our listeners what they can expect to, 
see in terms of accountability for Eversource United Illuminated? I'm sorry to always nerd out on these questions, but by all um, means, please. I think it's important in this instance to break it down a little bit. Our utility companies are monopolies. So um, they're monopolies in highly regulated industries. So what does that mean? That means like um, the rail industry and other large, highly regulated industries, cable, um, for a long time, telecommunications, not so much anymore. There are one set of poles and wires, just like for a long time, there was one set of, of, of rail. And so somebody has to own and operate and maintain those poles and wires. And Eversource and UI maintain those poles and wires. They are electric distribution companies. The state made a decision um, more than 20 years ago to deregulate. And what that means is the utilities no longer generate power. So they don't create power. They don't own Millstone nuclear power plant. They don't have generation assets. They buy power. And so that's why on your bill, you see a fuel charge. That's, that's the cost of buying the power. And then the delivery charge, which is the charge that the distribution companies charge you to give you the power through the poles and wires. Now, this is a heavily, heavily regulated space because this is a public good that we all depend on. And what people need to understand is in a heavily regulated space, you're regulating monopolies that are guaranteed profit, they're guaranteed a rate of return, and they're guaranteed to make their money back, but to have their costs covered. But they're a public service company um, who are supposed to act as fiduciaries for ratepayers. And ratepayers are all of us, people who pay the rates to get electricity. This whole industry marketplace is regulated by a body called the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, or PURA. It's also regulated by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And these bodies, but in particular PURA, they act and now we're really going to nerd out. They act as a fact finder, which means they investigate, and as the adjudicator of claims, which means they act as a court. Um, and so the law says that we present, we conduct our investigation and assert claims and engage with utilities in front of Pura and with Pura. So basically, if you have a problem with utilities, you got to go to Pura. And Pura technically, and in fact, does the investigation and adjudicates, sits in judgment on the claims. But the Attorney General speaking for ratepayers and the state of Connecticut also conducts an investigation side by side with Pura and in, in support of, of Pura's investigation. And then we make claims and assert arguments and write briefs uh, and pre present evidence on behalf of all of us, on behalf of ratepayers and on behalf of the state of Connecticut. So why do I describe all of that for everybody? Because I want you to 
understand and people need to understand this is a very particular and peculiar process it's not just like i go to court and i sue them uh i'm not saying that could never happen but that's not generally how the law has this set up the law has it set up that it has to go through this regulatory trial like proceeding and so when pura first started it noticed a proceeding but i thought it was too narrow and so I said, Pira, you've got to make this a contested case, which is a trial-like proceeding. And you've got to make it a prudence review, which helps us evaluate all manner of their response, but also gives me access to all penalties, fines, and manner of relief, including barring them from receiving profits or recouping storm recovery costs that I don't think are warranted. And so I went back to Pura and said, guys, and, and Madam Chair, you need to notice a much broader investigation, contested case, prudence review, so that I can bring the heat. And if you don't do that, I won't have all the tools at my disposal. And they granted my motion last week. And so we're going to bring the heat. now. That being said, these are extraordinary powerful entities. They have tons of lobbyists, tons of resources. This is not going to be an easy fight, but we are going to go after them. AG William Tong, bringing the heat and holding uh, folks accountable. Thank you for that very uh, detailed description. And, and I think I speak on behalf of some of the listeners when I say we're always happy to nerd out. Um, but let's take it in a little bit different of a direction. We, we noted at the beginning of this that this is convention week as we're uh, recording this. Uh, Democratic, Republican conventions, they both have the power to launch folks uh, from relative obscurity into uh, a national stardom. Uh, in 2004, which was a convention I believe you were at, a young state senator uh, got up on stage to deliver the keynote. And within minutes, folks were talking about him as potentially being the next president of the United States. Now, for many people, this was the first time they had ever uh, heard of a young man named Barack Obama. But for you, you had actually heard of him quite a bit uh, when you were at law school. Tell us about uh, your history with Barack Obama and uh, how you came to know him and, and what led you to become, I believe, the first lawmaker in Connecticut to endorse his presidential campaign. So uh, President Obama was a senior lecturer in law at the University of Chicago Law School. And he was my instructor in Constitutional Law 3, which is Equal Protection and the Due Process Clause. So what I know about equal protection, due process, and largely civil rights, I know from Professor Obama. Uh, if I had known that he was going to be president, I would have been a better student. But I was more focused on eating out late and my girlfriend at the time and my girlfriend's now my wife so she'll she forgives me for it but you know law school can be good times so maybe i should have paid a little bit more attention i remember being an 8 a.m class too which is like come on man that's so early um but he was a great teacher you know very thoughtful um very, very smart, strong command of the subject matter. You know, a pretty cool cat. Um, I also have had the honor of meeting and engaging a little bit with 
the first lady, Michelle Obama, she's much more, believe it or not, magnetic. She's much more presence, dynamic. Um, I'm sorry, President Obama, but as we saw last night, uh, you know, today's the day after Michelle's keynote speech. She's 10 times better than he is. And that's saying a lot, you know? President Obama is an amazing speaker and an amazing leader, but his wife, he doesn't even hold a candle to her. And that, in that, and that, that's an amazing, amazing thing to experience as a young person. And um, I'm very glad that I got a little, a little snippet um, with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're all huge fans of Obama, and you know, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say we're also huge fans of uh, her husband. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stole that line from Cory Booker. So. I don't know if he's ever going to see this, but if he does, credit to him. Um, another great thing about this convention is one of, uh, you know, a former uh, state attorney general uh, tonight will be nominated to be our vice presidential nominee. Uh, talk a bit about um, maybe how the role of attorney general could prepare one for being a vice president, a president, just a leader in general. Well, you know, um, we have a number of state attorneys general all over um the landscape now um kamala harris was attorney general of california she's the first elected asian pacific american attorney general in the history of our country she totally screwed it up for me i have to be the third sean <laughs> reyes who's a republican i think is the second and then of course hawaii really screws the whole thing up because they've appointed attorneys general and they've been Asian American, so Michael, you and I are out of luck. Um, but uh, thank thank them for breaking down the barriers so that we may follow. But not just um, not just Attorney General Kamala Harris and Attorney General Blumenthal, but we heard last night from Attorney General Catherine Cortez Mastro, um, who is now U.S. Senator from Nevada. Um, Attorney General Bo Biden, of course, of Delaware, um, served with great distinction. So um, AGs are everywhere. I think particularly right now, as Congress in many respects is broken, and, and I mean Congress broadly, not just, not just the House of Representatives, but the institution, its inability to discharge a lot of its basic functions. Um, a lot of those fights now devolve to the states and big policy issues like LGBTQ plus rights, DACA, a woman's right to choose, the Affordable Care Act, a citizenship question, all of that stuff are uh, very often and largely AG-driven fights and AG-led fights. And, um, that's why the scope of the job is so big now. And I think General Blumenthal, General Jepson, and General Lieberman had a lot to do with that. In particular, General Blumenthal, I would say, with tobacco. But the scope of being a state attorney general is um, broad and deep. You know, you heard me nerd out about Eversource and UI. And, and, and I'm not even the most expert person in my office. Right, but not even close. I gotta like really dig into it. You know that I argued the absentee ballot case in front of the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago myself. 
So I had to master that law. Um, I've argued two appeals in front of the First Circuit and the Second Circuit Federal Court in Boston and New York on immigration issues. So I had to master that law. And just the scope of being an AG is much broader now. We're, we're involved in everything. And, you know, on many days, that may sound cool. It is cool, but it's not always a barrel of monkeys. You know, um, uh, my good friend Gretchen Rafa, who is at Planned Parenthood, we were at a protest and she turned to me and she thanked me for standing as a firewall to protect the woman's right to choose, right? And I said to her, don't thank me because I wish I didn't have to do this, right? We, we settled whether a woman has control over her own body in 1973, the year I was born, Roe versus Wade, June 1973, I was born in May. And we're still litigating this issue that's been settled for 47 years. So don't thank me, it's a tragedy that we're still fighting about. Um, and so that's why you see AGs everywhere. I, I, look, I, I get criticism from the right and even some of my own friends, you know, give me a little trouble about how present General Blumenthal was and how present I am. And I mean, it's because we're involved in everything. And you'd rather I tell you about it than not, right? I mean, people, people want me to sue the Postal Service or sue on behalf of the Postal Service. And so we're going to do that. Um, and that's why there's so much action in my office, just because we get drawn into every fight. And sometimes we're the last resort, like the border wall, right? For example, like who's left to fight those fights but us? Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed, and I'm only 19, so, you know, there's not much lived perspective, but just reading from reading about history, it seems that this is a moment for all the different things that we have going on um, that really is catalytic in terms of people's education and awareness of not just the work of attorneys general specifically, but more broadly, the rule of law and the legal process. I mean, you had for a period of time in this country, a good portion of our population arguing over what would constitute obstruction of justice, what would constitute a breach of the Article II executive powers. Um, so do you think that that might be a silver lining and, you know, as we look around at the landscape, do you think it's overall healthy for our democracy that, you know, every problem that we have seems to be answered, not in the halls of Congress, but in a federal appeals court or in the Supreme court? Uh, let me say two things. One is I'm extraordinarily proud to be an American. And you, Michael, would not have the life that you have now. And I would not have the life that I have now were I not an American. That's a fact. If we grew up um, in, and were raised in the places where um, we are ethnically from, you know, in greater Asia, the odds that we would have these opportunities are much slimmer. Um, 
And so that is a promise of this country that is, is indisputable. And if you think America's in decline, you, you don't get out much. Um, this is the only place on earth where William Tonk can be attorney general and, and go one generation from the son of an undocumented worker to the 25th attorney general of the state of Connecticut. Can't happen anywhere else. And I believe that this country is durable. I believe that our institutions are durable and strong and can withstand tremendous pressure because of their inherent genius, right? Of our tripartite system of government, of checks and balances, um, of democratic tradition, of Republican government, all of those things, um, their design is better and more perfect than anywhere else in the world. That being said, it is not healthy. And the reason it is not healthy are many, um, or the reasons are many. Probably the biggest reason is economic dislocation and disruption. The world changes every seven minutes. You have no idea what a payphone is. And that's because life has changed so quickly, right? And um, what was true for me when I was in college is so not true for you anymore. And I, I'm not that old. <laughs> so uh, I think there's that. But on top of that, I think there are two things that really bother me. And I, I, I don't mean to be this like a large philosophical dissertation. You know, it'd be impossible to cover all of the ground. But, th but there are two things that I think really bother me about the state of our public discourse and the health of our democracy. The first thing is that people don't realize that government democracy, this republic, is largely an honor system. That's what it means to honor the rule of law, to follow the rule of law. Um, when we face a constitutional crisis, it's because one branch of government, in this case, the President of the United States mostly, decides he's not gonna live by the honor system, right? The Supreme Court told you that you cannot repeal DACA like a month ago. And the president's saying, yeah, you know what? I don't think so. I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. And that's not only not okay, it's not only against the law, but it violates constitutional principles that essentially are an honor system. Because what the president's thinking is, what are you going to do about it, Supreme Court? Hey, John Roberts, do you have a military? Do you have police officers? No. You got a robe and a fancy building, and you can give orders. And that's the problem right now, is that people don't understand that there's no external force that's going to come in and make the president do what he has to do. He has to do it. And if you don't respect that system, which is essentially an honor system of personal commitment to doing what the law requires you to do, we have a real problem. So that's one concept that I think people have a hard time understanding because they think there's some 
external police force that makes us do all these things. At the highest levels of government, no. You know? The second thing that really bothers me is we have the government that we deserve. And what I would say to Democrats and Republicans and unaffiliated, but let me speak to Democrats. If you're frustrated by your party, if you're frustrated by your elected officials, if you're frustrated by Washington, I hear you. But the first place to look is at yourself. Because we choose our elected officials. And if you are unhappy about the way a campaign went, ask yourself, how many phone calls did you make? How many contributions did you make? How many friends and family did you talk to about a particular candidate or a particular issue? Because it doesn't just happen on its own. And I think people need to, and now I sound a bit like a conservative, but this is the way I think we need to think about it. We need to take personal responsibility for our government and our republic. And when you don't take personal responsibility, this is what happens. Donald Trump. And so don't go blaming the system because it's math. If you got more people voting for Joe Biden, right, than any of your preferred candidates in the primary, Joe Biden's gonna win. And if you have more people voting for Joe Biden than Donald Trump, Joe Biden's gonna win. If you don't lift a finger and don't help in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Donald Trump's gonna win. And People think that government exists on like some fourth dimension. It just happens, right? And it happens to them. And they have no power over what happens. Baloney. I, I know. I've, I've done it for 14 years now. Government is very responsive, if not over-responsive, to the people that it hears from. Now, you're going to study this stuff in college public choice theory, right? The loudest and most ardent groups have an outsized and disproportionate effect on, on our political system and on change because they're the most motivated, right? Right. And that's true. So if Donald Trump only hears from this disaffected racist fringe base in his party, that's who he's going to respond to. Now, he's a bad guy to begin with. So... So that's why he responds to them. But um, it's, it's those voices that are most persuasive. And you have to counter that if you're unhappy with those voices and you have to work. And I think it's, it's those, those two, I will call them ethics, you know, of our system that I think people are insufficiently focused on. And and that's why we are where we are. Wow. So that's a that's a that's a great message, I think, to begin to draw our conversation to a close. I know you've got a postal yeah. service to go defend and an election to help uh run smoothly right now. So I will let you go. William Tong, any final words, any final messages? I know there's a lot of other uh, topics we didn't get a chance to cover because, as you said, you have a very broad uh, spectrum of responsibility. But any final uh, thoughts or or, uh, or words for the listeners? Vote, 
fight, fight for your state and your country. Um, rise above uh, where we are right now, you know, the, and this is, I'm saying this Democrats and Republicans too, like be better than this. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Treat each other with respect and love and fellowship and sisterhood and brotherhood and, and let's be Americans. There we go. Great message to end it on. Attorney General William Tong, the 25th Attorney General of the state of Connecticut. Thank you for joining us today. And Thanks, Michael. Talk to you soon. While those were two really great conversations, I want to thank William Tong for stopping in and talking to us. So glad he's out there in federal court every day protecting Connecticut. And I also want to thank Lloyd Fernand for helping me set up that interview. And I want to thank Mary Wielander for joining us. Uh, she's going to be a tremendous representative for Derby, Orange, and Woodbridge. Uh, it was great to talk to her, and it'll be great to talk to another candidate next week. That's what we're going to do here, let you know who's out there running and who's out there uh, serving the state of Connecticut in the Democratic Party. So guys, we've got about 10 weeks to go until Election Day, which means it's crunch time. Uh, this week is the Republican National Convention. I'll probably have something to say about that next week. But, um, you know, in the meantime, guys, definitely you heard about from Mary how to get involved in her campaign. You heard from William some ways you can get engaged in the process that he takes part in. So get out there, get engaged, get involved. If you haven't registered to vote yet, go to vote.org and do so. Make a plan to vote. And thank you so much for listening to Connecticut, the Connecticut Democrats podcast. Mm -hmm.